Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather. And I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. So this is another supplemental episode, um, one of the many chats that I've had with amazing, awesome people over the years. This is an interview with James Peacock, the founder of the Anne Boleyn Society, and this was at the 2019 Tudor Summit. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, you can get the show notes with the complete transcript of the talk at englandcast.com slash James Peacock. If you want to actually read it, you can do that. englandcast.com slash James Peacock. And just a quick reminder that TudorCon 2021 is happening in October in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania at the beautiful newly restored winery. It's a 1790s bank barn that we do it in directly across the parking lot from the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair. It's three days of talks and entertainment and feasting and meeting amazing new Tudor history friends um, with some awesome Tudor speakers. And it's just so much fun. And I just can't wait to welcome you to TudorCon in person in October but I only have 11 tickets left. So if you want to come to TudorCon, now's the time to get your ticket. And because I know that things are weird for a lot of people, and I use that term kind of loosely, things are very strange, things are all of that. Um, I am offering payment plans. So you can set that up with me. Just send me an email um, or text the listener support line at 8016-TESCO, and we can get that set up for you, no problem. Um, and the payment plans are really, I had a couple of people ask me about it. It's just really however you want to do it. Um, I can set up auto invoicing on PayPal and we can split it up into, you know, four payments, six payments, whatever works for you. Um, just let me know. Okay. So now we will get started with James Peacock. It was such a joy to talk to him and I'm so glad that I can share this episode with you and we can dive deeper into Anne Boleyn. So 
the next speaker I'm really excited is James Peacock from the Anne Boleyn Society. So I got this biography off of your LinkedIn profile. And so since 2014, you have led the Anne Boleyn Society, which is, and you founded and led the Anne Boleyn Society, which is an online community with over 20,000 followers. And it exists to celebrate the life and legacy of Queen Anne Boleyn and promote her influence on the shaping of British history. And that society aims to discuss and debate the life and times of both Anne while taking into account the period in which she lived. So I'm really interested to start with, how did you get into Anne Boleyn? How did this come about for you? Oh gosh, that, do you know what? That, it started when I was very, very young. My interest in history kind of grew as a young child. I remember um, visiting certain locations like the Tower of London, Hever Castle and stuff. And I just found that the, the Tudor period in general, I found fascinating. Mm. But there was something in particular about Anne Boleyn that I always found so intriguing. And I was quite young when I watched the film Anne of the Thousand Days and that just tipped the interest for me. That was just the big, that was like the, the big start for me. I just absolutely from then on had this real interest in this woman who came across so strong, so intelligent, so determined um, and so passionate and has this incredible story about her. Um, but also just kind of, and I could tell from quite a young age reading books that she was judged so differently depending on who was writing the book or something. And it was just made me more and more intrigued about her. You know, there were some parts that you'd read that or would find out that she wasn't, um, well, she couldn't, or she didn't always come across as the easiest person, um, but other parts you'd read that she came across very much like a very kind and generous person. And that is one of the things that drew me to her um, and has kind of been the interest ever since, really. And what I find still fascinating about her is because she comes across as human. You know, so, so many characters you read about in history, they come across quite one-dimensional. But with her, she comes across a lot more real and I think that that to me is where the the interest has always been mm, yeah and it's interesting because you talk about the people either love her or that they, they're it's kind of it's hard to have it's yeah. hard to go middle of the ground middle of the road man uh, one of the articles that I saw that you had written was like bitch Anne versus like <laughs> thing um and I wonder like what tell me about what your opinion of that is uh, well I I think to be honest, I I can imagine from her perspective, you know, trying to put yourself into the, her into their. I think it's always important, as you probably do yourself when you're reading about these um, these people, you kind of put yourself into their perspective and think, okay, well, how would they have felt? How how you know what must they have thought of this, and how frustrating this sort of thing must have been? And I think for Anne, she comes across as someone who shows her emotions, you know, someone who, some people could say someone who had a very loose tongue at times, but you can tell when she had pretty much, you know, like situations like with her stepdaughter Mary, for example, mm -hmm. that was not an easy relationship. And you can tell that when she would try and um, reach out to Mary and Mary understandably would knock her back because you know she obviously did not see um Anne Boleyn as the queen she was very much siding with her mother and 
you can understand how for Anne that would be, you know, she wouldn't, she couldn't control her emotions on that part. And that's what I, I think is so interesting about her. So you get this side that she doesn't always come across particularly easy and quite temperamental at times. But then you get this side to her where you hear stories about her charity and her generosity and how she looked after certain people who were exiles from abroad, um, who were interested in the Reformation, um, mm. her interest in, in the poor, um, her interest in, you know, charity in general, which is just so, it's so interesting. And, and I think, you know, no one, no one is a saint, no matter what, and I don't believe in saints. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like Anne is because you, when you read about her, you, you really do get this sense that she was a real person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was almost human, huh? Yes, exactly. Go <laughs> figure. I know. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because sometimes people want to lump her into or want to call her a, a feminist. And I always kind of hesitate to put these kind of modern concepts on people that wouldn't have had that kind of vocabulary and wouldn't have had those kinds of kind of thoughts what do you think about her in terms of like a feminist or not um i can see why people today look at her as a role model for for feminists or female leadership bit similar um to her daughter elizabeth and to an extent as well, Mary, Mary the First mm -hmm. as well. Um, but I am, like you say, I'm very hesitant to kind of um, put that sort of, um, give her that title because that wasn't a title that existed in her time. And mm -hmm. I think she, I, I can see why people feel that she is ahead of her time in some ways, but I do, I think she's very much of her time. And I think she's the product of um, this, um, education experience she'd had out on the continent at the courts of like Margaret of Austria and then at the court of France when she'd been surrounded by these strong influential women and of course then becoming queen and being crowned almost like a monarch rather than a consort and I think really she's very much of her time and she's working within the you know the boundaries of her time really yeah yeah, yeah it's it's interesting i want to talk about that early educational experience and also ties in with this summit because one of the other speakers is danielle the five-minute medievalist talking about christine pizan who um would have perhaps her writings would have been yeah. at the court of margaret of austria and her writings are again something people try to say is feminist or not or you know there's the debate over her and i guess i i want to ask you about this kind of early education that anne had at the court of margaret of austria and surrounded by these powerful queens of of the continent um and i can you just talk to me a little bit about her her early role models in that respect yeah well, i think i mean i feel that that i feel quite strongly that that has had that was her big impact really I mean going to the court of Margaret of Austria this woman who had been married a few times had turned down suitors and was ruling as regent for her you know for you know and then you go to um well sorry then Anne goes to France and obviously she's at the court of France and we've got Marguerite of Angoulême and Louise of Savoy so you've got these powerful figures who are very much involved in politics and the governments of these countries and even then when she comes back to England she you've got Catherine of Aragon who um, uh, 
okay, it was a number of years before that, but before Anne came back, but she was ruling as regent whilst Henry was away. So you've got, mm -hmm. so she's got these influences to go on for herself. And mm -hmm. I think that, that would have had a, such a strong, it, you, you know, obviously we don't know what conversations would have taken place between her and these women and everything, but they, it, you, you can't deny that they must have had a huge, well, they did have a huge impact on her and who she became. Yeah, yeah. And this was such an interesting period in terms of education for women in general. It seems like there was this kind of height of learning for women during this period. And even you talked about with Catherine of Aragon and the way she um, coordinated her daughter's education. And it was this broad humanistic thing that later on you don't see under the Stuart Kings and earlier you don't see and she thinks of age right during the, the height of that yeah. and uh, a lot of value on that. What kind of stuff do you think she was reading at these at these places and, and how do you think, like, I think about the religious texts too that she had access to. Yeah. What kind of, tell me about like what kind of books and authors, do you, can you tell me anything about what she would have been, what her influences would have been like that Good. well we i mean you can you it's obvious that her love of manuscripts and you know courtly love and things would have started at these courts um for example and she must have read um works of christina um and and others i'm um but yeah they must i mean she would have yeah, sorry, I'm stumbling a bit. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I just kind of threw that out there. But even like the early Reformation works that wouldn't have made it to England yet, she would have had access to that. Yeah. And yeah. she would have probably been able to read it even as a woman yeah. because she was with these powerful women, right? Yeah, and you yeah. know, to, it, it could have been when she first came across uh, Tyndale and places like that. And I, you know, it's tempting to imagine her at like one of the um, gatherings of Marguerite of Angoulême and in the discussions there. Um, mm -hmm. And with her sharp intellect, which she had, you can't, you can't, it's, it would just be, it just feels so wrong for her to think her not being part of it. Obviously, you know, she was a lady in waiting and, you know, Margaret von Galen is the sister of the King of France, but you kind of think, and especially from like um, letters from one time that Anne is queen and how she wished she'd meet Marguerite again and stuff, there must've been some relationship. So she mm -hmm. must've been involved and read the exact works that would have been in the library of Marguerite and even earlier Margaret of Austria I mean this seems to be when she really came up this was like her coming of age period um and she it, it just feels that you know she must have read all this like stuff that hadn't made it over to England I mean because we know that when she came back to England and when she um to, you know first appeared at court she was completely different to all the other English ladies she stood out for her dress sense her intellect her you know her I'm struggling to find the word now but her you know her, je ne sais quoi yes exactly yeah <laughs> that seems to be her you know she so yeah that is just it's a fascinating time really yeah um, <laughs> yeah um so what as you research and what has been your biggest kind of eye-opening discovery or kind of something that you had maybe believed about her that then when you found out something different surprised you or tell me a little bit about like how your relationship to her evolved and mm. yeah 
I think um, from, I think for me what I'm and still very much learning more now one of my um, big interests is her role in the Reformation and it's something I'm starting to delve deeper into now because I really want to sort of understand that a bit more and stuff and the Reformation in itself and I think um, that in particular her the more you read about it and you read about her connections to people like Cranmer and um, other bishops and everything who were lead who were very big figures in the Reformation, how they were very much part of her support faction. And then you hear about stories, like one of my favourites is the story of Hales Abbey, while she and Henry were staying at Sudley Castle. And she, um, it was her really who investigated who initiated the investigation into the supposed holy relic uh, that was there and you know so stuff like that which never really gets touched on never gets mentioned and it's such a shame because I think that's her role in that is so underplayed yeah and then also once the reformation had been set in motion almost um her the relationship with uh, Cromwell falling apart because of going too far in a sense like with dissolving all the monasteries yep. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's another thing. People, um, similar to the feminist title, people often label her very quickly as a Protestant. But back then, the lines between Catholic and Protestant were not as clear and distinct as they would later become. Who knows what would have happened had she lived um, another 10, 20 years. But I, that's another thing I'm slightly hesitant, you know, when people start giving her that title, because obviously, you know, we have to look at, but I, I think more of an evangelical as stuff is probably the better way to describe her. And I think, you know, that's, that's an interesting one is her, her religion and well, the religion of the time, really. Mm -hmm. um, the is still in its very early stages. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like you, they didn't have the understanding of Protestant Catholic. Mm. It was like transubstantiation and the miracle of the mass, and, yeah. and like where do you fall on those lines? But it wasn't necessarily. Yeah. I'm a Protestant. I'm a yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. She definitely had such a role with that, though. It was almost like this perfect storm, wasn't it, with her? Oh, like. It's a story you couldn't you couldn't really make up, really. I mean, here's this girl who's not a princess by birth. She goes off to the courts of Europe. Uh, she comes back to England. She, and a few a few years later, the king catches she catches the eye of the king, and he decides he wants her a mistress. But then he wants to marry her, and there's this whole turbulent period. And then at the end, you've got the execution, which is a bit like. Uh, someone once described it as like uh, the story of Arthur and Guinevere, but unlike mm. the Guinevere story where she saves at the last minute and is executed, and it's that cre incredible kind of, well, how did it all change so quickly? But then about 20 years after that, you've got the story of her daughter coming to the throne and mm. very much defining female monarchs um, mm. forever, and has in, in many respects, and as many people say she was the most successful of all henry's children and you know that which just it's the irony of it all it's mm -hmm. not the son that he wanted it's the daughter he had with anne boleyn that ended up being one of the most successful monarchs in british history and i it's it's all part of that story that pieces together which it, it couldn't be it's almost like something that i don't think if you if you were writing a a fictional drama you couldn't even make that sort of stuff up really it's just yeah. incredible yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 so um going back to to the girl and she's 
coming home and catching the attention of the king. There's a lot of debate around was how her family and her father and did they push her into this role or was she scheming at it? Yeah. Like, what do you think about, there's even so much people have said like, oh, she was pimped out and, mm-hmm. you know, the sisters and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, I'm curious what your opinion is about that. And uh, just kind of talking a little bit about how, how you think she felt about Henry and especially in those early stages yeah um i i really do feel sorry for anne's father i think he gets um an even worse deal than anne really um and i don't think i do i don't think it's fair when people say that he pimped her out um thomas berlin was already a very um successful courtier he was already riding high at court in favor of the king um and so I don't see why he would want two of his daughters become mistresses. There's even a, um, a report from Chapuis, which I always love to mention, which um, kind of hints that he wasn't actually as entire and never had come out in favour of this whole great matter and the marriage between Anne and Henry, um, or the relationship, I should say, really, between Anne and Henry in the beginning. Um, and I, I think because, you know, you've got this long period that the great matter went on for, and I think from his perspective, there was always that worry of, well, is it actually going to happen? Because there were so many stumbling blocks along the way. And if it didn't happen and the relationship fell apart, he would have had two daughters who would have been the mistress, discarded mistresses of the king. And that would not have gone down well for him at all. But, and by that stage as well, his daughter Anne would have been, you know, beyond the age of, of the marriage market and everything. She would have been considered old in the Tudor time. So, and he couldn't have then arranged probably a good marriage for her. Um, so I, I do feel quite strongly that I don't agree with the, the famous story that he pimped um, his, da- his daughters really out at all. But um, it's, it's such an intriguing one, the whole about Anne coming back, because we know obviously she had marriage contracts and everything which then fell apart. And I certainly think in the early days, probably, you know, that she no doubt would have enjoyed the attention of anybody you know anyone would enjoy the attention especially the king um and i do i i know that there's often this is where another debate with anne comes in because like you said people either see her as the scheming who set out set sets out to become queen or they see her as you know this harassed victim by henry um i think probably it's somewhere in the middle on that one i think um you know i don't think she i i think you know she she certainly wouldn't have wanted to become a mistress like her sister we know she turned that down um i don't think she would have expected though anyone would have expected the king to marry and i know people often um kind of put the words into her mouth a little bit that you know she then set out to satan well if you make me your wife instead in those days obviously you know the hierarchy and everything you've got god and the king and everyone saw the king as god's anointed and everything you know god's god's representative on earth and i think you know i i kind of feel that that's bordering into the the feminist title that people think of today a little bit it's almost like say, would she have been that daring really to speak to a king like that i think you know possibly she could have 
maybe lost her head a bit sooner or something had she done but equally i think when the when the crown was offered you know who is going to turn that down it's an incredible advancement for herself for her family and i think by that stage you know it, you you can't turn down a, an offer like that so it should be yeah 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 so do you think she had any kind of affection for him or like do you think she was ever in love with him or uh, was it more like pragmatic it's so it's so frustrating that we don't really have any of her letters and they all seem right. that the replies henry must have been destroyed or lost or something and i think she must have had some affection for him there's, there's certainly is some evidence that later on that as their relationship was progressing as well that there was some affection returned from her to him and um so i think then there must have been um some affection there in that relationship certainly they worked so closely together they he treated her as an equal and they were constantly in each other's company so i think there must you know i don't feel that it was just um from her point of view it was all the greed and the power and um, for him i don't think it was the obsession always either i think you know he generally seems to certainly in the early days um you know he he generally seemed to appreciate her input and i think you know they were they obviously it's hard because everyone you know you always judge history people do judge history backwards but really they were when you think that they were a great match for each other yeah yeah definitely that on a personal level at least and then that kind of gets me and segues nicely into her downfall like obviously you can say the, the really obvious part she had a daughter and then she miscarried and there was that whole stuff and then the the political landscape changing but where do you, and then people say about well her personality was great as a mistress but not as a wife and there's a lot of different yeah. elements that go into it but how do you get in three years from marriage and coronation that yeah. <laughs> like, how do you do that incredible and i think that's one of, that is the reason why her story is so fascinating and why people just i don't think it, there'll ever be a time when her story is not being constantly printed in biographies or um, fiction books or tv dramas or theater plays and stuff because i think everyone wants to everyone wants to put forward their own opinion and research it for themselves and i think i, I mean like you said it's so fascinating it's it's it is just so bizarre and the whole change of the mentality in that um you know people there's all sorts of theories of was it the fact that she she couldn't have a son and there have been miscarriages was it the fact that henry then had this accident and he wasn't of the right frame of mind afterwards um was this plot that was put against her just so convincing and it was seen as a chance to really get her out of the way had she become dangerous. I mean, I, I do feel that one one thing I feel quite strongly of is um, it's very popular in like the world in fiction I've noticed really um, for the relationship to start going wrong after she gave birth to a daughter and not the son that was so promised and so hopeful. But we know from later records, particularly around like the pro the royal progress of 1535 but they were very much it seemed like it had gone back to the early days again they were very much in love they were very they were constantly together and even reports from Chacuiz and stuff were stating that you know yes they would argue but then they would passionately make up afterwards mm -hmm. so it's this temperamental relationship but it I it's I it just 
it seems to have continued it seems to have gone fairly well right up until the last few months if anything um and yeah who knows really what the actual answer is as to why it all goes wrong but i i kind of think maybe i'm sitting on the fence here a little bit but i kind of yeah. think it was this combination of all these things going on her miscarriage um, henry's accidents and then of course the case put against her falling out with cromwell um it all must have come together i i think it's too easy to have one answer i think i think there's just when you look at the evidence it just seems like it must have been all these things coming together mm-hmm. that caused it Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about her relationship with Cromwell and how that evolved and devolved or fell apart? <laughs> I, th- I always feel that Anne and Cromwell, looking at the evidence and well, from what I've researched into and um, seen, they, were, they both come across very similar. Mm-hmm. They both come across as people who stand out a bit more from the from the crowd at court. Both very sharp intellectual, um, both slightly seem a bit wary of other people and having their own sorts of, you know, kind of gay, their own kind of thoughts and not, you know, both wanting to be that position of authority and with the king. And I think it's it seems, certainly in the early days, they could work very well together. But I do think it seems to have disintegrated um, because of their, both of their ambitions obviously came to clash. They, it seems that like they were just too similar. And I think um, it seems to come from then that um, it, in the end, only one of them could survive. There was only room for one of them. And Cromwell seems to have got in there first, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so can you talk to me then a little bit about the history of how she has been portrayed? I know you've, you've written and talked a bit about her portrayal in the media. And if you can talk a little bit about kind of how that also has evolved and, and changed. Because yeah. I feel like a hundred years ago, the portrayal of her was different than it is today. Oh, very much, yeah. yeah. And has evolved with the changing attitudes of times and mm-hmm. um, certainly after her execution you have this period of time where it's almost like it's she's she's erased or she's forgotten about or if she is mentioned particularly in mary's reign it's not in a positive light and then of course we've got elizabeth coming to the throne and her memory is restored mm-hmm. um and that she becomes a lot more celebrated. She's the mother of the queen. And that's kind of when she suddenly gets transformed into this Protestant hero, the Protestant martyr. And then over time, you've got this, um, again, this changing, evolving, you know, like the Victorians. Um, she becomes this romantic victim, you know, the lady in the tower, as it were, and everything. And there's that romantic side to the story that comes out. And then, of course, you go on later to like the 1960s and Anne of a Thousand Days and in the feminist crazed um, it, you can tell that that very much influences the film you know um, Genevieve Bujol's portrayal is phenomenal but you can tell it is very much influenced by the the feminist ideas at the time and of course then it's involved again to slightly um, you know like the mean girls and stuff portrayal and you know the other Berlin girl and everything like that and you know it does it, she has she is definitely someone who has with the changing attitudes of time or what's the what's the view at the time towards women it seems like she's very much it's it has a big influence on how she is portrayed in the 
in um, novels or, you know, in the media, basically, really, yeah. She's almost like a, like a weather vane or something. Very large, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, what, what do you think is like, why does Anne deserve her own society? What, why is she worth studying? Why is her story still lingering with us? And, and why, yeah, why does, why does she have her own society? <laughs> well, the, the idea really came about for me around the time of um, the whole announcement that the the bones that were found in the car park in Leicester yeah. were Richard III. And um, a shout out here to Sarah Morris, um, who's co-authored the book In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn, who's currently running the Tudor Travel Guide. Um, I remember on uh, a page that she was running at the time, she happened to mention, well, why doesn't Anne Boleyn have a society? She would have loads and loads of members. And it kind of made me think, actually, yeah, I think she would, she would. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought, well, and at the time, there's no way I could set it up, I'd have to work with someone else. Um, and I thought about it, and in the end, I remember contacting her, and she was ever so supportive and gave wonderful ideas and everything, and it kind of just evolved from there. And then I decided, you know what, I will set it up and just see how it goes. And it's it's taken off, and I think that, you know, that kind of, yeah, so I'm so pleased that that kind of happened, really. Um, so that's how it kind of came about, and I think the Anne certainly deserves her society because her own society because similar to Richard III, you've got these two completely different viewpoints about her. And she I do feel she is misunderstood and misrepresented at times. And I think it's a chance to debate and discuss her life, but also celebrate her role and the fact that she did have this huge impact on history. And I know some people will think that I'm romanticizing her a little bit there by doing that. And maybe I am, but I, I, I do very much believe she had a huge role in history and there's so much debate about her and that should continue. Debate about everyone should continue as it, as it does, but there's not much celebrating of all that that goes on and it doesn't get, it's what is not looked at, what is completely ignored is what role she had in history, the impact. And that is something that I'm very passionate about, about bringing out a bit more and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So other than mm, the English church and breaking away from the Pope and um, having her daughter and all of that minor stuff, what is her impact on, on British history? I think she, it seems that she, she had this, I mean, she was such an intelligent woman and she was a huge interest and promoter of the arts and, you know, manuscripts and everything and being involved in that stuff in the politics side of things. And, you know, that's not to say that we hadn't had women and queens before that had done that, but I think she certainly helped set that standard at the time certainly for consorts um and i think she she again that that's not looked at often is the fact that she kind of helped i do feel that she had a role in helping adapt that role of the role of the consort and um, so they weren't just merely a you know a sidekick to have babies and produce the heirs and everything um that I feel is something she you know she should be celebrated for more and something that yeah. should be noted more yeah, it's interesting because I've often heard like 
Catherine of Aragon described as the sort of last medieval queen, as it were, and Anne Boleyn, like the first more modern queen. Yeah. And I don't know that that necessarily always fits because you've got like Eleanor yeah. of Aquitaine and, and people yeah. like that, which is this, this yeah. idea of the woman as the childbearer and that's her yeah. son, and she's the peacemaker and, and yeah. the childbearer and, uh, and Anne certainly yeah. Burst through that in a, a yeah definitely and like you said there have been um, queens queens consuls before that had that certainly weren't just the the peacemaker or the childbearer like you said Eleanor of Aquitaine Margaret of Anjou and Isabella of France you know they, there were these incredible women and she I think helped she was part of she I you have to you can't not include her in that set of these incredibly intelligent women who had a role in not necessarily in promoting women's interests at the time because that wasn't something of the time but unknowingly i i think it very much seems to have a it helps adapt that and helps to you know which is why people nowadays look back on that and see that as a as a inspiration for what they can continue today and what has continued since really yeah yeah that's and she's kind of like the high point and with elizabeth it really after yeah. her it doesn't really get much better than that it doesn't and like yeah because i mean her daughter obviously goes on to become queen and i always admit this great quote from tracy borman was that elizabeth was able to be the queen that her mother wasn't able to be she was able to take on she seems to have been she it had the best of both sides from both her parents um obviously she said she very much modeled herself on her father um which is which was completely the right thing to do her father was the king and he was respected so to do that was just genius really but she seems to have taken on the best of both of her parents and adapted that and to become such a successful monarch in her own right it's, it's incredible and again she is another um figure who you know you look to as this incredible um incredible monarch and again set the standard for female monarchs after that really yeah yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, um, where? So that that's a awesome high note to to leave it. <laughs> where can people find out more about you and your work and and just get more involved with the Amberlin Society and with you? Uh, so the Amberlin Society is on Facebook. Um, that is where most of the discussions and everything can take place from there and people can message me at any time through there um, I'm also on Twitter um, and that is my username is at society underscore Anne and the same on Instagram um, same username on that and I'm contactable on all three of those um, platforms it's where I post the most on <laughs> um, so mainly on Facebook and Instagram um, more than Twitter it seems um, that seems to be that's where I'm more you're more likely to be able to contact me on those but yeah if anyone um, wishes to contact me I'm more than happy I regularly will post um, book recommendations not necessarily just on Anne um, on the period in general and stuff and yeah I'm always up for a discussion and debate and everything awesome awesome so you've been so generous with your time and I really have loved speaking with you and I know you this is probably going to get some big debates started um, when people watch this as well. <laughs>
<laughs> so we'll have fun with that. Um, but thank you so much for, for taking the time and for being so generous and, um, and for sharing so much about AM with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute honor to be part of this. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode, that interview with James Peacock from the Tudor Summit in 2019. Remember to check out TudorCon, englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2021 for all the details and to get your ticket. All right. I can't wait to see you in person in October, hopefully. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back next week with a regular, regularly scheduled episode. Hmm. Okay. Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, a sandal may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrick, that soli sam lees on sleek. Men full maiden of me, fair and freighty ponder. Between all these walls, wake a wonder, border Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.